if you recognise the sacredness of your time, it's it's one of the, the most wonderful ingredients for courage because it makes you realise, well, okay, this is scary, but I'm going to do it anyway because I don't want to look back and know that I had the choice and the only thing that stopped me was I, that I didn't have the guts. Hi guys, Anna, and welcome back to the Rate Active podcast. We're bringing you insightful conversations to help you live an active and inspired life. So make sure you hit subscribe so that you get the latest episodes as soon as they are released. I'm your host, Rachel Jay, and I'm so excited to welcome my guest to the show today. She's the international best-selling author of the global classic, The Top 5 Regrets of the Dying, published in 32 languages. She's also the author of Bloom and Your Year of Change. She has been a speaker at TEDx and is a teacher of courage and regret-free living. Welcome to the show, Bronnie Ware. Thank you, Rach. It's lovely to be here. It's so lovely to chat with you and I am very excited to get stuck into our chat today because it's actually the 10-year anniversary of the um, Five Regrets book, which is which is when it was originally published 10 years ago. Um, and I actually hadn't looked at the book for quite a while, but it popped into my mind and um, I actually have the original edition that was published by Hay House. And it's it's so funny because it's actually, I didn't realise this, but you've actually signed it. So I don't really know. <laughs> um, I think it might have been a, a promotion with Hay House sure. or something at yeah, the time. Yeah. So I'm, um, I'm so excited to chat with you about this book. And um, obviously, you know, it's great to celebrate this with you. And obviously, it's been so well received around the world. Um, but some people might not know that this book actually began as a humble blog post. So can you take me back to that time when you originally wrote the blog post and how it came to be this book? Uh, sure. Okay. So I was trying to get going as a singer-songwriter and I'd been working in palliative care, just finished, and I set up a songwriting program in a women's jail and a music magazine asked me to write an article about my experience there. And so I did that. And when I, after I finished writing that article, I thought, why aren't I writing more? I, I love to write. I'd always had pen friends as a kid and I was a songwriter. And so I just thought, okay, well, I'll write, I'll start a blog. And I had no idea what to write. I even Googled good blog topics <laughs> and it all just felt so out of integrity with, with what I wanted to say. And so I just let it go for a day or two and then one day I just got this very clear guidance, write what you know. And I thought, well, I've just finished working with dying people. So I wrote, the, I wrote that article. I just sat down and thought about my eight years that I'd looked after them and how it had shaped me. And I, I'd been learning through these regrets for, eight, for, the, for the eight years. So it wasn't like I just made it up out of my head in half an hour. It was like, oh, okay, well, they're the things that changed my life. Maybe they'll, they'll serve others. And so I published that and then I just got on writing more blogs and stuff and teaching in the jail and then I, I started burning out and I moved back to the country and just did a lot of healing because I'd done eight years of looking after dying people, then a year in a jail. So, of it's course, full I on. out. Yeah. Mm. And then um, it was sort of as I was coming out of that time, I just pretty much said to life, okay, I'm bored with being 
sad and tired. I, I want to move forward now. And that's when the blog took off. So the blog had already been out for six to eight months or so, between six and eight months anyway. And people were asking, could they share it? And I was always saying, yeah, sure, as long as it comes back to my website. And, uh, yeah, so then the blog just took off ridiculously, like 3 million views in the first year. Wow. Yes. And and from that, uh, an agent in America got in touch and said, have you ever thought of writing a book? And I said, well, sure, everyone's got a book in them. And so she helped me get a proposal together for The Five Regrets. And it had to be the only way I could write it so it was relatable to people was so how it was transforming my own life or how it had transformed my own life because most people don't relate to dying people, but they relate to someone trying to live without regrets. And so she uh, tried to get it published. I tried with one publisher and she tried with 24. So 25 rejections. Wow. And then, yeah, then I um, I put it, I thought I will stuff it, you know, I'll put it out myself. <laughs> so I put it out myself in uh, in the October and then in February, in the same 24 hours as my daughter was born, so I became a first-time mum at 45, a real blessing, like conceived second month we tried. It was just incredible. Um, but in that same 24 hours while I was in hospital, Hay House, my dream publishing house, rang me and offered me a publishing, an international publishing deal. Um, and so then it just it became like the Hay House Fastest foreign rights seller in fastest foreign rights seller in Hay House history. Wow. Yeah, and still is, I think. And yeah, now there's a movie being made as well. And we released an updated edition just as my writing improved a bit. I because that, that edition you have, it was never edited because I just Oh really? So I this just was put it out. This was the mm. original one that you originally self-published. Yeah, it, well, it's it's that's the Hay House one, but they mm. pretty much just wanted to catch the wave that I had created from self-publishing and so it didn't go through any editing process at all. And when I'd self-published, I didn't have the money to, and I knew nothing about writing books and stuff <laughs> or the industry. Yeah. So, yeah, that book that went into 32 languages was actually the unedited version and the version we put out a few years ago, which has a yellow cover, it's the same story. I didn't change anything other than tightening my writing up just a little bit, just some paragraphs. I may have said a very similar thing in the first sentence and the third sentence. So I just merged, you know, stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. What an incredible story. I didn't know um, all of those details, but it's um, it's so amazing that this book has impacted so many people, I think, around the world. Um, what What is it about this specifically, do you think, that has touched so many people. Why do you think that this is just taken with with so mm. many people around the world, regardless of culture, really? Even yes, yeah, it is regardless. Um, I think partly because it gives people permission um, to to have a go at their lives and and helps them understand the importance of that because they they're faced with death a lot in the book and it makes them reflect on their their own death. And I think as well, perhaps my naivety about the publishing industry, so it's written in a very conversational tone because I knew no other writing style. I still write that way. And uh, but my writing has improved, thankfully. But, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I've, I've asked myself the same. And perhaps I just wrote the story that people were, were ready for at the time and that people were, were actually ready to say the way I'm living is not making sense I, I want, want to live how it makes sense to me. I want to change direction and my book gave them the courage to do that. 
Yeah, it's so, so amazing. I remember when it came out and it, it was, it, it is a life-changing book and especially if you're going through some sort of transitional period in your life, uh, it, it does give you that permission to reflect on those things yourself, w- what you're doing in your own life and how you can make changes to improve and better your own life. So I'm, I'm so grateful for the book. Um, I, I think it'd be really interesting to go into the actual journey that led you to the blog post because like you sort of mentioned earlier, you spent eight years in palliative care. How did you come to find yourself in this line of work? Because I know that it's not really something that you probably thought, mm, I, I want to do that specifically. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> so can you tell me and uh, share a little bit about that story about that journey? Sure. Well, I, I'd been a bank manager and I'd, I'd moved around a lot. I was quite restless as a younger woman. And because of that, I had quite an accelerated career path in banking because I'd just go to a new town and it was different in those days. And I'm talking like the late 80s, early 90s. And I'd just go into a town and say, you know, I used to work for Westpac or whatever. And they'd say, and, and this was my job. And they say, oh, well, we don't have that job, but we've got this one. I'd say, oh, yeah, I can do that. And so by the time I actually left banking, I was I was a bank manager at a, at a very young age uh, in my, I think by the time I left, I was just 30, 31 or something. And uh, and so, but I was very unhappy there. And, and I'd done some travel overseas and I was sitting down by the, the Swan River in Perth one day. I was living over there for a while and I wrote a list of what I liked and what I was good at. It came from uh, the book Creative Visualisation by Shakti Gawain. I've read that. That's a really yes. great book, yeah. Yeah, and the only two things that um, came into, uh, three things that came into both was uh, maths and counting money and obviously that wasn't making me happy because I was already doing that in banking and the other two were were photography and writing and so I just decided to sort of see myself as a creative person and it, it took a long time to let go of other admin jobs that supported me in that but then I took on the job then I found my way to be being a singer-songwriter and I needed a live-in job because I wanted to not be paying rent or a mortgage and to be able to focus on my music. And so that's sort of how I ended up in in the work. I'd I'd been a companion when I was travelling in England. So I came back and I started as a companion and then the lady I was looking after was, was ill but it turns out she was terminal. And so I stayed with her and then the agency I was working for just said I'd handled it well and did I want to stay in palliative care? And I thought, well, life wouldn't have brought me here if I couldn't handle it and it, it was just so far from what I, I I'd really been trying to find a job with heart that I didn't have to wear high heels or corporate or stockings or corporate uniforms they were really the only prerequisites and uh, and I ended up in palliative care and so yeah it was, it was a very surprising journey for me um, or a place to land but I I love it and I'm so grateful that life called me there. Yeah, I know. I mean, look at what has happened since then because of because of journey into that. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about. I mean, the the regrets. I know that you've spoken about it so much, but I think they're so uh, helpful for everyone to to know what they are because they can sort of take those into their own lives. And one of the things that you teach and speak a lot about now is having the courage to 
live your life on your own terms and regret-free living because of this experience. And the first regret is I wish I'd had the courage to live true to myself, not the life others expected of me. And so I'm, I'm interested to know, can you share a little bit more about what these people were telling you about this particular regret? What were these expectations that they felt that they had to live to? Mm. Well, Grace is probably the best story around that. And she was a really sweet, gorgeous little lady. And and I loved her dearly. And she'd been married for over 50 years. And she said her husband was a tyrant. Her adult children confirmed that. And all she ever wanted to do was travel Australia on a bus tour. And she, uh, he didn't want to go and so she just spent her life serving her husband and then he went into a nursing home and so she was straight off to the travel agent to pick up brochures and was all set to start living her life. This is in her 80s. And then within three weeks of that, of him going into the nursing home, she started becoming ill and it turned out it was terminal lung cancer. She'd never been a smoker. He'd been a smoker in the house and she just came to really regret and she spent a lot of time in, in my arms sobbing and, and frustrated, in anguish and just heartbroken because she hadn't lived the life due to herself and it was a pretty simple wish that she had. It wasn't like she was trying to do something massive but he just wouldn't even consider that and she didn't go and say, well, I'm going to do it anyway. And she didn't leave him because when I, when I asked her that, I said, well, you could have left. And she said, oh, what would the neighbours have thought? And that's what it was like from that generation. And it was, it was a very lovely suburban street in Sydney and you could see that's where all the kids would have grown up together with all the neighbours' kids and, and it was just one of those, those settings where uh, her whole identity was wrapped up in, in living in that house as the wife and mum and... And, yeah, and in the end being full of tears and anguish and, yeah, not, not actually even getting out of, out of Sydney again, let alone around Australia. Mm, and, I, I mean, I think it's really interesting because that kind of societal or cultural pressure or expectation is something that's probably quite implicit. I mean, it's not something that necessarily you speak about where you have to live life a certain way, but you may see things in your world that dictate to you or people, you know, people listening that, that you feel like you have to live life in a certain way because that's what other people are doing or that's what other people are expecting you to do because that's what everybody else is doing. Yeah, well said. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. It's and not always, it's not always that direct. It can just be that implicit way. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, it still exists, you know, like yeah, in, 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 um, in our culture today, it's just, it might just look a slightly different, but mm. yeah, I, I think it's, it's so fascinating to hear that that people's opinions can can really direct the way in which you choose to live. Now, obviously, you know, courage is a big part of, of your work now and I really love the word courage because, uh, I mean, the root of the word courage is, is core, which is the Latin word for heart. And courage, I think, is so synonymous with, with heart. We, we hear that, I think, a lot. And so I'm curious to know how you would define the word courage and what does that mean to you? Mm, that's a nice question. It's, it's true, it's, it's heart. And so much about living a life, creating a life that's going to be free of regrets 
is having the courage to back yourself. And it's not even about the opinions of others. It's also about dealing with your own fears and limitations and realising the sacredness of your time. And so for me, I'm so I'm so grateful that courage has been one of the thing, the muscles I had to develop, otherwise I wouldn't have been called to that work. And I'm probably one of the most courageous people I, I know. And but what it means for me is that it's it's about backing yourself no matter what, because I take leaps of faith that don't make any sense to a lot of people. And on top of that, I'll then have people like like say my mum or my best friend or someone like that just projecting their fears onto me out of care and love but it's like oh actually I'm already dealing with enough of my own challenges here and so having to to really zone in to having having the courage to and discernment to let go of of what everyone else is saying and and dropping on you and then still backing yourself even if you're scared still just backing yourself and thinking well I know that my time is sacred and I this could be the hardest way I've got to go, but if I don't go this way, I'm going to regret it and I'd much rather go through the pain of breaking through this next level of my to my potential than lying on my deathbed with the regret of not having tried. So for me, courage is really about backing yourself and honouring your heart. Yeah. Yeah, backing yourself. I think, I mean, I think people, most people can understand courage conceptually and um, it, it's, you know, we, we understand that we need to be courageous to to do the things that we want to do. Um, but for someone who's listening who maybe doesn't really know how to implement that really, and, and instead of understanding as a concept, how how do we actually action that in our lives and how can we be brave enough to move forward in spite of the fear? Because obviously, like you were just saying there, it's it's not only projections of other people that maybe are coming onto us, but our own fears that really stop us from moving forward. Um, how can we sort of actually action that? Mm. Well, you face the fact that you're going to die and that every day that you're alive is one day less of your life and that it's easy to think oh, I'll get around to it one day, but most of us know someone who's died in their 40s or or 50s or 30s, you know, people die die early and it's not always someone else or another family. It's at some point you're going to meet, you're going to have a friend who dies or a relative who dies really early and you may end up being that friend or relative. So when you face the fact that you are going to die and there's no guarantee it's going to be in your 90s, then you just start to realise how every single day is a gift. And it doesn't mean that every day you bounce out of bed raring to go but it does mean that, okay, you know, if you're procrastinating a lot or, or just holding yourself back for whatever reasons, and we, we all have layers of fear and healing to work through, but when you sort of think about that and then you think, yes, but this is one day left of my life, I may not be able to have a chance to do this in 10 years' time and it may not be that you die. It might be that, like, I live with disabilities now and so it may be something like that, that you end up, you know, with disabilities through through disease or car crash, whatever, or it could just be your whole world is, is completely different and, and all of the things that are lining up to support you now 
may not be lining up later. And so, and so you still could get where you want to go, but it could be even harder to get there then. And so I just think if you if you recognize the sacredness of your time, it's it's one of the, the most wonderful ingredients for courage because it makes you realize, well, okay, this is scary, but I'm going to do it anyway because I don't want to look back and know that I had the choice. And the only thing that stopped me was I that I didn't have the guts. Mm, yeah, I really like that. And it's it's almost like contextualizing your life, really understanding and remembering that our time is limited and that it's us that's holding ourselves back in that in that instance because it's really our responsibility to do what it is that we want to do. Well, well, it is, but we also have to be gentle on ourselves. Like, there's no point to saying I've, I've got to do this, otherwise I'm a failure. Like. There's one of my quotes I share regularly or a lot of people share it regularly around the world is make happiness a priority and be gentle on yourself in the process. And so it is about just saying, okay, I'm going to have a go at this, but also acknowledging with compassion that you're human and there's going to be some stumbling blocks, but as long as you keep taking a step forward and a step forward and even if you die before you achieve that goal, at least you know you gave it a go and yeah, and, and so I think it's more that, that you just got to give it a go and see where it's going to lead you. Yeah, yeah, I really, really like that. And I, I guess what goes along with this is, is I guess, when you talk about listening to your own heart, because that's that's sort of the point of it, is following your own heart, having the courage to follow your own heart. So I'm interested to, to know what does this, I guess, how, how do we listen to our own heart? Because I know that sometimes it's uh, difficult, you know, because there's a lot of noise out there. There's, like we mentioned before, other people's opinions. There's cultural and societal expectations, parental expectations that we may have. How, how do we actually discern what is true for ourselves? How do we know what is in our own heart? Mm, okay, that's a, that's a lovely question. Um well, it's the feelings. You've got to trust in the feelings within you. And if you strip it all away and you do that, like what would I do if I had no responsibilities, no money challenges, no time challenges, then there's a bit of an ingredient there that, okay, whatever you would do is is something that you could work towards making your reality. But I think more than anything, it's, you know, the, the your intuition is your heart's voice. And and it can take a long time to get to the point where you fully, fully trust which way to go. But what I have found is that, I mean, it's it's my best friend these days, but when I was first finding my way to being brave enough to only honour my intuition, I didn't always know what felt right, but I always knew what felt wrong. And so I think it's about observing those feelings as well and thinking, okay, this like, there's a big difference between doing something, something being hard because you're breaking through fear or something being hard because you're trying to force a door that wants to stay closed yes. because life's got something better in store for you. And so it's about tuning into yourself that way and thinking, am I forcing this because I'm too scared to try anything else or because I've invested so much time and energy in this direction already and I feel like a failure if I don't make it happen? Or Am I just, is this just getting hard because I've got to break through some of my own fear here? And I think that when you tune into your feelings there, that's when you know what feels right or wrong. And if you don't know what feels right, you'll certainly know what feels wrong. 
and, and use that and then move forward from yeah, there. Yeah, I really, really like that. That's a great way to frame it for yourself to, because we all know when, when something doesn't feel quite right, that's definitely, I think, a easier feeling or sense to have rather than the other way. So as you're developing this muscle of tuning into your heart or your intuition, I really like that to, to be able to really pay attention to what doesn't feel right. But also I just liked what you said there about your intuition being your heart's voice like that's such a beautiful way of putting it and and even just understanding I think this is one thing that I've also this is one thing that I am thinking about a lot at the moment is discerning the difference between breaking through the fear of maybe you're just breaking through another limit your own upper limit of something that Mm -hmm. that you require to go through to for your own growth as a person as opposed to forcing something that like you said is is really a, a door closing because it's redirecting you into a, a different path so I really really love the way that you described that just there um, now one of the other regrets is I wish I hadn't worked so hard and I think this is a really interesting one because I just wonder if it's generational I, I, I'm not sure but I I wanted to ask you know what was coming up for people around this and why this was was such a big regret for people that you spoke to? I think it was generational to a degree. I think it's still valid. Um, So the example of of John was one of the men, uh, the people I looked after was he, his whole identity had been wrapped up in his work in in management and engineering. And his wife wanted him to retire early. They wanted, she wanted to go traveling he wanted to go with her, but he just kept saying one more deal, one more deal, one more deal. And then he agreed to retire, but he, he said he wanted one more year. And within that year, she became ill and died. And so he did end up retiring because he'd wound his career up in that direction. But his retirement involved no travel and certainly not his beloved wife. And so he had a huge regret around that. And spoke a lot about identity, like not letting work be your whole identity and not letting it be your whole life. Like even though if you he enjoyed his work, I enjoy my work, I'm sure you do too. And when you love your work, it's very easy to just keep working and working and working. But what happens is if what I've found by honouring that regret myself is that if you make a very conscious effort to honour other areas of your life too, you come back to your work with a lot more efficiency and clarity anyway. So you don't have to push so hard in your work. It's more about just receiving and letting it come through. So, but it is that it's it's a fear of having to control everything and you think you've got to work so hard, otherwise it's just never going to get anywhere. And there's a big difference between working too hard and being committed. You can certainly show up every day and be committed, but as long as you also realise there's a beautiful blue sky out there. I'm going to go and enjoy it today. I'm going to go and hang out with my friends or my family or whoever and or, or honour some of your other desires and or even just leave enough space to work out what those other desires are. Mm, yeah, I think that's really important. I think too it, it's, it's about balance, right? It's about finding the balance with the other areas of your life like you were saying. And I, I like that because 
I feel like I think a lot of us do work a lot and, and I know mm. myself I've, I find it difficult to have a bit of downtime and take some time to step away from even though I really I really love what I do and so I think it's um yeah it's it's a really important point that we all have to remember to honor the other parts of our our lives and yeah and have a more I suppose it's more of a holistic or or yeah just more balanced way of living yeah and I don't think balance is ever completely stable you know it's a bit of a dance and it is fluid and there are times when you're working on a project, you've got to give it your all, but then give yourself a break and allow yourself a break or just go out for a few hours on a weekend with your phone switched onto airplane mode. And, and I think that's probably where the generational difference is going to happen now in working too hard is that your generation compared to my generation, your generation are on your phones a, a lot more. I mean, I'm not saying my generation's not. I'm in my 50s. I'm not saying we're not on our phones but certainly, like, I, I don't have Instagram and Facebook on my phone anymore. I've taken them off and I, I access them in work time and that's that's it. And so I think the working too hard thing is that we can be on our phones all the time. Oh, I'll just reply to this, this DM or I'll just reply to this email. And it's so quick, especially if you're an organised, efficient person. It's like, I'll just get it out of the way now and then it's done. I don't have to think about it again. But it is more about, okay, now I work these hours. That This this can actually wait. People can wait. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it almost sounds like it's a bit, and I know you talk about this as well, is setting boundaries, right? Because that's, that's a big part mm. of it is, is setting those boundaries around your work and and your time where you have the space to to not look at things. I know it's very just it can be very distracting. Um, you know, you, I'll respond to one DM, but then you get stuck on that app for however many hours scrolling yes. through. So it is yeah, about being yeah. being um, conscious about that, I guess. Um, mm. Now, I'm I'm keen to talk about this one, which is um, which is regret number three, and it's I wish I had the courage to express my feelings and. I mean, I think this is interesting. Why do you think it's difficult for people to express their feelings? Well, this is the one that I related to the most personally, <laughs> so I can answer yeah. that. So there were two angles that it came from with my patients. One was people wishing that they had expressed their feelings in terms of telling their kids how much they loved them or telling their siblings how much they appreciated them. And that's self-protection. And, and some of it is also just family dynamics. Like it's it's a family that's been taught, let's let's just be strong and carry on and don't talk on that level. And so a lot of families didn't actually have those open communication channels. But then it also came from the angles of people saying, they wish they'd express their feelings in terms of standing up for themselves against bullies in the family and that sort of thing and wishing that they had actually spoken up and said, I don't want to do this, I don't want to be a horse rider, I want to be a swimmer, you know, whatever, things like that. And then just um, allowing their silence or, or uh, experiencing their silence actually robbing them of their vitality yeah mm. and I guess in that way it's I mean what what about that makes that a regret made that a regret because expressing is it just more that they wanted they, they want people to know how they felt about about you know if they yeah, yes yeah 
Yeah, so one elderly man I, I looked after, he'd been through the Holocaust and he worked until he was 91. That's when I met him. Hadn't retired at all and his family, he'd provided really well for his family and they all sat down with the financial review and talked about money and and shares and whatever was going on in the finance world and they had that, that connection. But when it came to him being diagnosed terminally, his family just pretended they knew what was going on, but they just pretended that he wasn't dying and they wouldn't even talk to him about it. And when he asked them, am I dying, because he, they convinced the doctor not to tell him, he, they just say, oh, no, no, don't be, don't be silly. No, you'll, you'll be better in no time, bringing in enormous meals for him when all he could eat was like half a tub of yogurt and stuff like that. And so he said to me, I am dying, aren't I, Bronnie? And I said, yes, yeah, you, you are. I mean, I, I didn't sort of, I did it as gently as I could, but I wasn't going to lie about it. And and he was so sad because he want, he felt like at ni- in his 90s, at 91, that his family didn't even know him and he wanted to be able to let them know how he was feeling. Like he was really scared and and he was just, he had so much going on and instead he shared it all with me, a carer who had known only a few weeks who was there admittedly 12 hours a day, five or six days a week, but sharing it with a relative stranger and then being able to actually talk about it with his family because they just didn't want to talk about it. And he felt that it was just too, he was too sick and tired by then for it to be worth the effort. And even when I offered to mediate, he just said, oh, no, I'm too tired, it's too hard now. And so he lived with that regret of not having expressed his feelings because he died feeling like they didn't know him at all and they didn't also, and also they didn't give him a chance to say his goodbyes and to reflect and reminisce. And he wanted to do all that with his family and they're just... Like, oh, no, let's not talk about that now. You're going to be mm. fine. It's like an, avoid, an mm. avoidance and of what, what the reality was was actually happening. Yes, and, and I guess that was their coping with what they'd been through together as a young couple. You know, they met after the Holocaust. They, the husband and wife had both both been in camps and stuff. So it's, it's pretty intense and that probably was their coping mechanism. Mm. But in the years since, in the 50 or whatever years since, they just kept those patterns up and never actually got down to the, the big conversations. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, coming off that, I, I'm interested to know if after all of your experiences with with being in these homes with people, do you have any suggestions for people who are dealing with people who are close to them, maybe a family member who is who they know has a terminal illness and they know is going to be passing away at some point in the near future, how, how they can show up for the people that they are, um, you know, waiting to, to pass away, mm. you know? Show up as a listener and, uh, and when the other person's saying, oh, off you go, you know, get out and you can, they can just say, oh, no, I just want to hang here. We don't have to talk and they can just have a book and just be there because the conversations aren't always when people just walk into the room and I think that's why... I was blessed with so many amazing conversations because it would just be when someone would, would wake up and then they'd just share the most profound insight and then we might talk for five or ten minutes and then they'd go back to sleep again. And so just by being there as a listener without having to force conversation, 
is a real gift to someone who's dying. But so is bringing a little bit of the outside in because the dying people want to live for as long as they can and even though they can't get outside anymore, you know, they're not mobile or well enough, sometimes they just want to hear a little bit about that it was busy on, I mean, I just thought of one one conversation, it was busy on Bridge Road in in Melbourne when I was working there and and I remember um, a relative coming in and saying, to my, my patient, oh, so busy on Bridge Road today. She said, oh, what was going on up there? And so she felt like she was a part of it still. And even though she wasn't out there, those little funny day-to-day details can, they're not the big conversations, but they can really bring some nice lightness to someone who's dying. And often the people who are dying feel really a bit of a... Um, responsibility to those who are being left behind and so they're just trying to still look after everybody instead of allowing themselves to be looked after and they feel like a real burden and so when someone can come in and just talk on little day-to-day details it it can just lighten the situation and make it um, make them not feel so so guilty as some people, dying people do mm. for being the sick yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's really nice. I like that. Um, one of the other things that I wanted to touch on is, I mean, I've heard you frame frame this um, or speak about this, which is um, give yourself permission to do the things that you want to do, which I, I guess ties in with, with what we've been speaking about. But specifically, one of the regrets um, it, it ties in with, which is I wish I had let myself be happier. And I think sometimes, you know, specifically we talk about this in terms of self-love um, and, and I've heard you talk about self-love versus selfishness. So can you explain a little bit about what self-love actually means and what is the difference between self-love and selfishness? Mm, okay, well, self-love is realising that you're just as worthy as everyone else that you love and that why should you have to be at the end of the queue for your own care and attention when you're an equal to everyone else? And maybe you actually need more of your own love because you haven't got as much, been, you haven't received as much love as, as they may have. Selfishness is about not considering anyone else and just saying, well, I'm doing it my way and, and that's just, that's it. And it's, It's without any consideration how it will affect other people. But self-love is about, is is not that at all. It's not like, like selfishness might be, well, uh, you know, you all want to go there, but I'm going here, so I don't don't care what you do, I'm I'm going there. Whereas self-love is more about learning to receive so that you can show up better in the world. And so self-love is actually love for others as well because the more you you deepen your own sense of self-love, and I say this by, from experience, the, the, the more open your heart is to then share with other people as well. But it, it's such a common phrase now, self-love and self-care, but it is an individual thing, but, but it's certainly not selfish. It, it's basically saying I am just as important. It's, it's not saying I'm more important. It's just saying I'm... I am equally as worthy as everyone else of receiving my own love and care. Yeah, yeah, I like that. That it's you are equally as worthy of receiving love and care. I really like that uh, that distinction. Um, I think one thing that a lot of us may experience around self love is is the feeling of guilt that comes up. Perhaps if if it's not been something that you are accustomed to giving yourself, 
um, that love. How, which, which I think you speak about too, is, is how can we relieve ourselves of that guilt if it's something that we are not accustomed to giving ourselves that mm. love and care? Well, guilt, guilt is toxic and it really is just is someone else's projections and someone else's mind games that have taught you what guilt is anyway, someone else's control or expectations of you. And so it comes back again to realising the sacredness of your time and it's like, well, okay, I can feel guilty and feel bad about this or I can be really proud of myself and be a great example for other people on what what is actually a happy life and what is self-care and what is self-kindness. And I just think that that guilt is so unnecessary and it was actually a really strong theme in some of my family dynamics and I just don't do guilt anymore. And even now my mum in her 80s, she'll say, oh, I just just feel a bit guilty. And I say, oh, for goodness sakes, don't. Like that's just a game people want to play to make you feel bad for making a decision that honours yourself and you, you have to honour yourself if you're going to show up well in the world and the more of us who have the guts to not take on that guilt and to actually say, well, this is who I am, I'm not going to be ashamed of that and I'm going to show up as, as beautifully as I can, as fully as I can in who I am, you're actually serving the world a heck of a lot more than carrying the guilt of, you know, 10 elephants on your back just because you didn't meet someone's expectations. I mean, they're not even meeting their own expectations if they're, if they're dumping it on someone mm, else. Yeah, yeah, it's a really great point to, to really not carry it with you, you know, and just sort of let it go. Um, I, I'm curious to know what your self-love and self-care habits are that you've put into place in your own life. Mm, okay. Um, I leave a lot of space. I definitely, uh, I find that if I overfill my calendar, I'm, I'm not a good, I'm not at my best. And so I do leave space. I mean, I don't know how long you waited for the interview with me, but I don't do many interviews at all. And it's not easy to get an interview with me. And when I did interviews years ago, I just ran myself into the ground. And so that is one of my acts of self-care that I love having conversations, especially with people who know my work well and ask good questions like you are. (laughs) But at the same time, I want space just to be sometimes and I need gentleness. And I'm also a single mum. It didn't work out with my daughter's dad. So I'm a single mum. I live with, with some physical challenges. So I, for me, self, the greatest act of self-care is leaving space, that I don't overfill my calendar. And if we have a day out, then for sure the next day, like on a weekend, we don't have plans Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon. We never have plans on a Saturday morning. All my friends know that, that if we're going to catch up on a Saturday, it's any time from midday onwards. And my daughter and I let go on a Friday night. And I mean, sometimes she's at sleepovers and I just can let go and really relax and then go to sleep knowing that I can wake naturally, not have to wake and rush around. And so I guess Saturday mornings are probably my best example that for 10 years, I I just do not make a plan on a Saturday morning. It's my go slow morning. And then I ease into my social life and all my commitments or whatever from midday or one o'clock on a Saturday afternoon. And that time is 
so healthy. I mean, half the time my daughter's just sitting around playing Lego and we've got music on and we might be doing the washing or whatever, but but we don't even have to do that. It's really just about having some timeless time and those other little blocks of space I leave in between the week are the same, that when I finish my work day before she gets home from school, I sit and have a try. And, and if I haven't finished my work for the day, it, it, it waits. And it took me a long time to get to that, but I have really strong boundaries around my work and and I'm just very honest with my mates and say, well, no, it's, no that's not going to work. Yeah, yeah, I like that. And I think it's about knowing yourself too, right, because you need yes. to understand yeah. what is healthy for you and what's not. And it's different for everybody. It's different for everybody. Yes. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that I'm interested to know about is the people who didn't have regrets. Um, what are the things that they did do that made their life regret-free? Mm. Uh, one of the most common things was they had great communication with their families. Right. Um, and so they were really able to talk things out all the way through their lives rather than, yeah, so which is all the work that we're doing now in our lives so that we won't have regrets is what we've got the courage to, to have those, those big conversations. And humour played a really big role in people not having regrets. For people who came from families that laughed a lot, uh, you know, they some of them said, oh, yeah, I've made mistakes, but I'm not going to regret it. And they're laughing about the mistakes they've made instead. And then people who had faith and not everyone who had some sort of faith was free of regrets, but uh, most of the people who were free of regrets had some level of faith and and sort of had an inner guiding light of some sort. Right. Yeah. Okay, so this faith, we're talking about almost a, a sense of, and I don't want to put terminology on it specifically because I think everybody has their own way of discerning that for themselves, but this faith of uh, some sort of higher power, something that's bigger than them, it could be God, it could be spirit, it could be wh- whatever, what it, whatever right. the terminology yes. is, is what you're referring to there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I guess this kind of ties in a little bit with this this um, idea or these ideas that you speak to, which is letting go and surrender. And I think again, this is one of those things that we we can understand logically. But what are your suggestions for how we let go and surrender? And and this ties into faith because there's this element of trust, right? And and having this mm. courage mm. to trust. Can you speak a little bit more to that? And how do we do that? You know, okay. yeah. I love surrender. Surrender has saved me on so many occasions in life. Mm. Surrender, usually we only find the courage to surrender when we've given everything we can to try and make something go in one direction and it's not going and we've reached breaking point and we are breaking. And that's and so then we either ridiculously try and find the strength to keep forcing and forcing or we just say, I've given it my absolute best. I don't know what to do here. I know that I've given it my best. I've got to let go now. And so it's basically handing it over to that greater force and saying, I don't know what to do and I, I, I've given it my best. And, and that's that's the, the line to remember, that if you have given it your best, you don't have to keep trying to force it and everything else. If you have being brave and you've tried so hard and you've been committed and taken conscious action and everything else and you're still not opening the door that you wanted to open or things are not unfolding as as you hoped, then surrender into the big picture and trust that 
maybe life's actually got something even better in store and that what I have found is that it always knows the feeling that we're trying to attain but the feeling isn't always delivered through the vision that we have. And if you can trust that life will look after that feeling that you're wanting to experience, that feeling of security or success or um, connection, whatever, or wellness, whatever, you know, whatever the feeling is, and you can just let go in trust that it's teaching you from a place of love then you do let go and it's a muscle that gets like courage. It's a muscle that gets stronger the more often you do it. And I've, I just find now if, if I get, get really sick or anything like that, instead of resisting it and trying really, really hard to do everything in the wellness industry, everything in the science industry, whatever, like all of it, I used to, I was really um, anti-science for a long time, but I'm not now. I, I, I do science and green smoothies you know, <laughs> and I do it all. And uh, But I even if I, if I get sick, I, I sort of stop and think, oh, okay, I'm going to let go into this because it's going to happen anyway. So I either let myself get carried along on the ride. It might be bumpy and painful, but it's not going to be as painful as trying to force it. And then I find the lesson reveals itself so much um, faster and it's also a delivery of what I was asking anyway. So if I, my latest last year, I got quite sick again and I have rheumatoid arthritis. So that, that happened when my daughter was born. It arrived at the same time as the book contract and the baby. And, uh, and so sometimes I'm doing really well. I'm on a push bike. I ride a tramp, I jump on a trampoline. I'm in the pool. I'm having a great time. And then other times my daughter is dressing me. My 10 year old daughter is dressing me. So, um, but I hadn't been sick for a few years and last year I got really, really sick and I just trusted straight away. I let go into it and it was a hard ride. It was, you know, there was a lot of tears, a lot of stuff, but that's just a cleansing and being broken open. And, and from that, I got exactly what I wanted because I had been thinking, I don't want to work this hard anymore. And it showed me for those few months when I couldn't work at all. It's like, okay, well, what do you, from this, this blank slate, what are you going to take forward and what are you going to let go of? And so the first thing I did when I was well enough to close my online courses and started the vlog because I want to focus on creativity, not teaching. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Amazing. I really like that example that you gave there too of just what you've experienced in your own life of being able to surrender and let go. I think it's one that it's a lesson that I think we, we're constantly learning to to surrender because I think we do live in a world where we do just want to make things happen and, and have it go the way that yes. we see it in our minds, but it doesn't always happen the way that we think. And I think it's nice to know, to have that confidence and faith that if it's not going in a certain direction, that there's something better that's coming for us. Yes. You know, and yeah, it really, really turns out how we think it's going to turn out. And it really is just being human and the fear of wanting to control. It's only fear that makes us want to control it. If you let go of that fear and, can, and, and you exercise that muscle of surrender, life just gives you so many shortcuts and so much more fun along the way as well. Yeah, I think that's so important to remember and just to, to keep that with us because it, it it's comforting to know that when things aren't going the way that we think they should go. Now, one of the things that I do speak to all my guests about is rejection and failure because this is something that we all experience and, and uh, I, I'm interested to know what 
your biggest or most notable rejection or failure has been and what have you learnt from it? Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, I guess being rejected by 25 publishers was was pretty good. Um, I also, when I was a singer-songwriter, I once had the, um, the venue turn off the sound and, yeah, because there was this really big crowd coming in from another um, room and they're all and I was too quiet my, my music was too quiet for the hype of that this crowd brought from another another room into the venue so they just wanted to quickly put someone real happening up there on the stage and so that that was a bit of a kick in the guts uh, especially when I was a very nervous sort of you know it took me so much courage to stand up there but what I've learned from it, and I'll go more with the books then, is that the 25 rejections of the top five regrets of the dying is that it's only someone's opinion. And if you know in your heart that what you have to give is worth giving, then just keep going and life will give you it. Just show life that you're still going to show up, but not force it. And so I just said, okay, well, I know nothing about self-publishing but I'm going to put this book out there because I've sort of burned all my old bridges like Churchill you know I just there's no going back it's I'm going to go forward and I'm going to find a way forward but really rejection is just one person's opinion and sometimes like I had a colour photography book it took me three years of rejections to finally give up on it and it's and in the end I've, I've made it into other things but I ended up, Hay House was one of the people who rejected it and they said to me, I think it was like 10 years later, they said, yeah, I remember that book, but our colour quota was full for the next three or four years and we only did one or two colour books a year. And I didn't know that until 10 or 12 years later that they thought the book was really lovely and that my photos, it was a photography and inspirational book, and that my photos were really lovely and words were lovely, but... So it really wasn't about me at all. It was just it didn't fit what they needed at the time. And so it's someone's opinion, but it, it's definitely, it's really personal. Yeah. It's, it's really, really is really personal. Yeah, I think that's a good thing to remember is, is to know that there's obviously things going on on the other end as well that we don't always, like you said, you don't really know about. You don't know the full mm. the full picture. So I think that's really helpful to to know when we're faced with with rejection. Yeah, and also it makes you sort of improve and commit to to your dream. You know, okay, maybe maybe I could improve it before I send it out again. Or yeah, 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 to take it forward again. Now, my final question for you is: if you had an overarching statement or a mantra that you try to live your life by, what would that be? Oh, there's two I live my life by. Neither are my own. <laughs> That's can totally I, can fine. Can I do two? Yeah, of course you can do two. Okay. One is a quote by Josie Bissett that I, I read um, in 2000, no, in, in 97, um, I think it was, and it's that dreams come a size too big so we can grow into them. Oh, that's lovely. Yes. So it really helped me trust in, in timing and that sort of thing. And the other quote that I live by was from a, an older and wiser friend of mine one day when I was in my 20s and I said, do you think it gets better? And he said, oh, no, gosh, no, Bronnie, you just become more equipped to cope with it. And I and that really depressed me. And then he said, no, no, but let yourself be surprised. And so that's what I live by. I, I even wrote a song called Let Yourself Be Surprised that we think 
we're going one way and it's all looking really bad, but just let yourself be surprised. Yeah, Life I like might have that. something even better in its back pocket for you. Yeah, I like that. Let yourself be surprised. I really, really love that. Well, thank you so much for this wonderful chat. It's been such a pleasure to also celebrate um, 10 years of um, Five Regrets with you. Um, now, where can people find you and all your amazing work? You have other books as well, like Bloom and Your Year of Change and your other teachings mm. and bits and pieces. So where can people find you and, and all the amazing work that yeah, you do? Yeah, just bron- bronnieware.com. So it's like Bonnie with an R in it, Bronnieware, like Bunnings Warehouse, <laughs> bronnieware.com. And I'm also on Instagram and Facebook with bronnie.ware. And I'm on YouTube now. I, I forget that one. I've I've just started vlogging. I've, I think I've got four episodes out now and it's just a new direction that I want to take for curiosity more than anything. Yeah, amazing. So, but bronnieware.com will lead you to everything and bookstores all sell my books. Yeah. yeah, amazing. So we'll pop all of those links up in the show notes, guys, for you. So make sure you check it out. Um, tell us what you loved and learnt from this episode and pop it in a review on Apple Podcasts. Make sure you screenshot this, tag us and share it to your socials. Thank you again so much, Bronnie. And thank you guys for listening and we'll catch you next time on the Rach Active Podcast. Thank you.